Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So I don't know if you saw the news today, but uh, there was a uh, uh, mishap over in uh, uh, Trident Juncture. Um, the, right, a, with a Norwegian, Norwegian frigate. Ship, yeah. yeah, Norwegian uh, Aegis-class uh, frigate uh, had a collision last night uh, in uh, under cover of darkness uh, near Hakonsvern Naval Base near Bergen, Norway. Um, and the uh, uh, Norwegian ship Helga Ingstad uh, had, had a, you know, it sounds like a pretty horrific uh, collision, 137 crew members all evacuated from the ship, so that's great news. That yeah, that no, is great Nobody news. was killed or it, it sounds like uh, seriously injured, but they, um, they from uh, news stories, it sounds like they drove the frigate, intentionally grounded it so that it would not sink uh, because the hull was so compromised uh, that it was taken on water. That, uh, that And there's a chance, apparently, that it may actually slide off the shelf. It's right on the coastline. That it could slide off into deeper waters and and actually sink. So they're they've got a, a damage control problem on their hands right now. Yeah, the photos actually past that photo are even uglier. Yeah, um, the, the the one that showed the um, the st- uh, starboard side of the ship and, yeah. and just uh, I mean it it's pretty really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so our, our hearts go out, our our thoughts go out to the our comrades in the Norwegian Navy today. I was thinking one of we 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 had a uh, Norwegian officer, surface warfare officer who commanded one of those class of frigates uh and it was not his ship. I was uh, happy to see that. Um but you know, boy, our uh, our our colleagues over in Norway are are, you know, feeling the same kind of pain that the US Navy did a, a year ago. And it is not a good thing. So we, we wish them well. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit. Uh, this morning, I went to the uh, Navy Submarine League's annual symposium over in Crystal City. Got to hear a couple of presentations. A lot talked about. This was what struck me as really interesting. Um, the, the topic of conversation that I tuned into was a couple of um, discussions and briefings on un, unmanned underwater vehicles and the program manager, I forget the PMA uh, program, but Navy captain uh, who's in charge of those programs talked about small, medium and large and extra large uh, unmanned underwater vehicles. Then I got to see um, a model and a, and a video of one that Boeing has uh, developed that's a large uh, UUV that is, uh, it's like 87 feet long. And they've got one that's in the water, right? And it is a pier-launched vessel uh, that they launched from San Diego, Pearl Harbor, wherever, and it goes off for several months and does whatever it's t- you know told to do. It is diesel-powered, so it comes up in snorkels, but it is unmanned, and it, it goes out and does you know what 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 it's told to do. And they're they're testing that thing. It's going to be a competitor in uh, with a couple of other apparently uh, prime contractors who are. Uh, you know, vying for this business for the Navy, uh, but a whole family in different sizes. A, a small one, uh, this captain said, would be a man-portable UUV. Uh, a, a medium size is like the knife fish, uh, some of the Kongsberg hydroid things. We've got some advertising on our blog by uh, hydroid. Uh, and then these large ones that are uh, almost, uh, you know, small vessel ship size, you know, 80, 80, 90, 100 feet long. So, uh, that, that's a, a significant um, uh, avenue of approach now in the 
uh, mine warfare and also in the underwater warfare ASW uh, realm. So really, really interesting developments. Um, and of course, earlier this week, uh, we had the midterms um, and we, we don't get into politics here at the Proceedings Podcast necessarily, but uh, let's uh, just mention a couple of folks uh, who are relevant to our discussions. One is, of course, Amy McGrath, who was on the editorial board uh, a couple of years ago. Unfortunately, Amy lost, but she put up uh, a valiant campaign um, and she kind of got into it, um, you know, I don't know if you'd call it time late, but uh, she didn't have a whole lot of time to get ramped up. And it was a close race. So um, we're yeah, very was, proud of, of, of Amy yeah. um, for what she was able to accomplish. Marine there. Lieutenant Colonel who served as a uh, NFO and then a pilot, flew F-18s in combat, served on our editorial board, retired from the Navy uh, in uh, 2017. So just a little over a year ago, moved back home to Kentucky and ran for Congress. So, you know, good for her. And uh, she gave it a, a great run in a red state. She ran as a Democrat, but uh, definitely gave it uh, a significant challenge. So, and then on the other, uh, the other vet of note um, is Naval Academy class of '83, uh, Mikey Sherrill, who's a, a Navy helicopter pilot and then became a lawyer and was a prosecutor up there in Northern Jersey. Um, won a seat in Congress, uh, and so uh, wow, congratulations to her. That's great. So that's uh, that's good stuff. Okay, well, let's get to our guest. Uh, so today we've got uh, an, a book author on the line, uh, Mr. David Poyer, or uh, Captain David Poyer, retired uh, U.S. Navy Reserve. Uh, David was a class of 1971 graduate of the Naval Academy, served for seven years as a SWO on active duty, and then uh, another 27, 23, uh, sorry, years uh, uh, as a reservist with a little bit of broken service in there. Started writing books, um, you know, back in the 1980s, and has written. He's a prolific author, as you said. You know, you you've written a number of books, but David has written probably David uh, 25 books or so. Um, so, David, it's great to have you on the line, and uh, welcome from the Eastern Shore. Hey, hi, guys. Hi, Bill. Hi, Ward. Uh, beautiful day here on the shore. So, we uh, we reached out to you because uh, I, I read your—I haven't read all your books, but I've read the, the most recent four, uh, and the one that I reviewed in the uh, November issue of Proceedings is called Deep War, The War with China and North Korea, The Nuclear Precipice. And so in, in my review of it, I said, basically, you know, this is the 17th book starring your uh, surface warfare officer hero, Dan Lenson. He's now a junior admiral in this book. Uh, he's commanded a, uh, an, uh, an Aegis-class cruiser called the Savo Island in the previous couple of books. Uh, and and the, the series sort of starts off with um, escalating tensions in the Western Pacific, and it moves towards war and into war with China. Um, so so uh, set it up a little bit for us why you chose to write about war with China, uh, and, and, you know, tell us a little bit about the backstory of this, this book and this series. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, as you say, this is a miniseries. Uh, it's uh, really the 18th book in the uh, Dan Lenson um, series. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, we started that way back in the early 80s with uh, the Med, the Gulf, the Circle, the Passage. And we've taken Dan all the way up from Anson to, as you say now, he's an admiral, but only for the duration. Everybody has made it perfectly plain to him that this is duration of the war only. It's sort of a battlefield promotion, and then he's going to go back to being a captain. 
Yeah, that's uh, kind of what they have planned for him, but I'm not sure I'm going to go along with that. <laughs> so what we uh, what we are doing here, uh, Bill Ward, is uh, is I was I wanted to to write about um, the possibility of a war with China and North Korea, but the more I looked into it, um, the more I realized I couldn't do a book about that. I couldn't do a book about that because this would be something more like. Uh, an entire world war, it would take at least uh, four years. So I decided I would do it in terms of a mini-series, if you will. So starting from the cruiser, where, as you noted, Dan is uh, CEO of Savo Island, uh, we go to Tipping Point, where, where the world slides into war. Onslaught, the war begins, and basically the Allies kind of get their tails kicked in the, uh, in the inner island chain. The hunter-killer, which is about uh, maintaining and reestablishing logistics flow to the theater, and then deep war is where things really get down to brass knuckles. And I plan one more book in in that series, so I'm not sure what that's going to be called yet. But deep war will be out in December. And you you flesh out pretty nicely this character Dan Lenson. He's got a family. His wife is a uh, senior policy wonk back in Washington. She's worked for uh, different um, administrations. She's now sort of uh, been brought on board as a as an opposition member uh, in in um, uh, the, a new administration. Uh, so talk about that side of it as well. You know, you go back and forth. I like the fact that you go back and forth between this guy who's a professional naval officer who's out in the Pacific, he's fighting this war, and his wife is a senior, I, I forget, assistant secretary of defense. Uh, she's been a, a advisor to a senior member of Congress, um, and, and she's playing at the strategic level, making these very high-level policy decisions. Yeah, the, uh, the, the challenge in covering a war you know, as as Tolstoy discovered, is that you can't really cover a war from the one point of view character. So I I came up with five of them. There's Dan, who's the surface navy officer. There's Cheryl Starolakis, who takes over Savo Ireland after Dan's promoted out of that billet. Uh, Teddy Oberg, who's uh, a Navy SEAL, who's kind of uh, kind of has a kind of a dark arc. Uh, currently, he's just escaped from a Chinese POW camp. And he's trying to organize a guerrilla resistance in western China. Uh, so uh, his earlier history was fighting Islamicists. Now he's going to be leading Islamicists in a rebellion. Hector Ramos is, uh, is a new Marine recruit, machine gunner, who is uh, going to be involved in the invasion of Taiwan, the invasion of Itbayat. He's going to become a three-island Marine. And as you said, Blair Titus is in D.C. mainly although also involved in the technical aspects of weapon design and uh, system design, but she's in DOD. So, yeah, we, we, have, uh, we have different um, points of view, different looks at the war as it uh, emerges and develops, and uh, that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, an interesting um, conversation we've had here with our editorial board, and uh, we've actually reached out to the head of the Navy SEAL community, uh, Rear Admiral Green. Uh, we're going to interview him in a couple months and, and get him into probably the March or April issue of the magazine. But our editorial board, uh, every month, we talk about what's not in proceedings, what what haven't we had, what content should we have that's not in our pages. And one of the things has been 
a discussion about special warfare and, you know, Navy SEALs and special warfare have been, you know, heads down in Iraq and Afghanistan, the fight against, uh, you know, Islamic extremists, uh, terrorists, if you will, uh, for the last, you know, 17 years. And the question now for many uh, is, you know, what, are, what is the special warfare community going to do in great power competition? Uh, and so your your book, you know, you that's in here. You talk about uh, this, you know, special warfare Navy SEAL mission uh, in the South China Sea uh, that leads to the capture of this uh, SEAL chief uh, Teddy Oberg or Master Chief, uh, and then he ends up, as you just said, he's you know ends up in a, uh, a prisoner of war camp, which is just sounds awful as as bad as the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, and then, you know, he, uh, he ends up escaping in one of the earlier books and, and then becomes a, a leader of a resistance, right? So this, the, you know, what's the, what's the play of guerrillas in a global war between superpowers, right? And so, you know, that side of the story comes out. And it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was sort of broadly basing that on, on Churchill's orders to set Europe ablaze when all Europe was occupied and the only way that Britain could reach in and continue the war was with undercover operatives and fostering guerrilla movements. So that's uh, that's sort of uh, also what we did to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and I think it would be a natural thing for us to do with the separatist movements in South China, West China, Xinjiang, Tibet, China has a lot of um, Achilles heels out there, and I think we would take advantage of them. And certainly we have our own as well. Well, let's talk about the process of, of writing, David. So um, are you an outline guy? Or are you just a, sort of a, a free-flow improv guy? Uh, how do you construct a, a, a book? How, how did, for instance, the one we're talking about, how, how did you set it? I know it's part of a series, but... Um, all the details, the structure, the pacing, um, give the listeners a little idea of how, how you go about putting a, putting a book together. Oh, this is Ward, right? You're Ward speaking? I'm Ward speaking. Yeah, okay, gotcha. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to distinguish your voices here, and sometimes I really can't. Uh, yeah, well, you're a writer too, Ward, and uh, you know that, um, that you really can't start a book without some kind of outline, even if it only exists in your head. And, uh, you know, it's a book like this with five major characters covering all these strategic arcs and tactical arcs and, uh, and time periods and seasons and technical developments. I definitely have to have an outline. So I teach at Wilkes University, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, um, writing programs in the country. And I'm kind of um, uh, somewhere between famous and notorious there for being the guy who does huge outlines. My outlines are about 10 to 12 single-space pages, and they tell me everything that's going to happen in each chapter. Not that it can't change, but I find it saves me a lot of time if I think seriously about each chapter and visualize it before ever beginning to write. So I spend a lot of time on the outline, yeah. And then how about the research part? Um, how, how do you uh, get the details right? Uh, how, how do you uh, do? You have uh, go-to sources. Um, obviously, uh, Proceedings Magazine may be among those. Um, right, yeah, but okay. but, but <laughs> what's what's your general uh, methodology for uh, for research? Oh, I, I spend a lot of time keeping up with uh, with uh, what you would call the trade, I guess. 
Defense News and Early Bird and Proceedings and Navy Times and Marine Corps Times and lots of others. But also I depend on friends who help me, uh, people who are maybe fans who write in, uh, friends I've developed both uh, who are still on active duty and who are retired. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer not that everything doesn't have to come from my brain. You know, I may outline the, um, the story arc, but I, I go to, to people who know things from the inside to, uh, to develop the chapters themselves. So I, I have to hand a good deal of credit to the people who help me, and I do that in the acknowledgments in the back of each book, which are getting lengthier and lengthier as, uh, as I build up more and more sources. So I, I have to hand a good deal of that credit to them. Uh, you've been doing a, at a pace of about two of these books per year, because I think I've read four now in the two years that I've been here at the Naval Institute. So w- well, when it, when is the next one, the next Dan Lenson story uh, book coming out? Well, actually, two a year would be a little little too much stress for me. Uh, I, I do one book a year, and uh, and that that about with my teaching constitutes a full load. So uh, so as I as I think I mentioned, and I think you mentioned, uh, Deep War comes out this December. Um, the next one will be out next December, and then we'll deal with the aftermath of the war the December after that. So one a year. Got it. Got it. Well, that, that's moving. I, you know, writer to writer, I, that that as you mentioned in the uh, the the outset, Bill, David is very prolific, um, and uh, doing one a year at at this this that you know one hundred thousand, one hundred twenty five thousand words. Um, that's that's with a, a teaching job. That's that's you know, that's a lot you, of work. You, there's yeah. no free time, right, David? Right. I mean, you, you're you're totally living with this uh, cast of characters when you're not doing anything else uh, consciously. Oh yeah, and on on my uh, on my Facebook site, my uh, my fans keep complaining that they want them faster. And gee, guys, uh, <laughs> this is as fast as I can put them out. <laughs> I mean, they would be shorter if I had more time to work on them. Uh, so I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact, and this is a, a pinch me kind of moment, because in uh, the summer of 1983, I was a plebe here at the Naval Academy, and your book, The Return of Philo T. McGiffin, came out. And that is just a, a famous, famous book, uh, you know, humorous look at, at the life of a, uh, of a plebe in trouble at the Naval Academy. So I read that my, I read that my plebe year. Uh, laughed and and saw a little of myself. I saw more of my roommate. I roomed with a guy who was, uh, um, you know, m- very much cut from that same cloth of a guy who, you know, uh, was trying to live up to this uh, reputation of uh, being a little bit of a prior enlisted troublemaker, and and he did, and and he made me laugh all all year long. Uh, so the the return of Philo T. McGiffin. I can't believe I'm actually talking to the author. It's uh, you know, now thirty years later, pretty uh, pretty amazing. So that 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 was just a uh, a heartwarming story that I think helped keep me alive as a plebe. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. I got I got a lot of compliments on that one, and it's still in print after all those years with the Naval Institute. So uh, not everything stays in print forever, but the Lenson books and Philo McGiffin they are they are stayers. That's great. That's great. Uh, so what's going on over the uh, on the eastern shore? You mentioned as we dialed you up that uh, you're cleaning up from the latest storm and you're looking out on the water and you, you live on the eastern shore of the, of the Chesapeake Bay. 
Yeah, we uh, we had some uh, some big big trees go down. Not the ones we expected to go down, unfortunately, but we had some big ones come down across our driveway. So it's been uh, pumping the basement out, four feet of water there, uh, sandbagging, uh, slicing up trees, burning debris, just generally recovering, and uh, it gets you away from the keyboard. I got to say that for it. <laughs> Do you get over to Annapolis very often? Yeah, we get up there a couple times a year. Sometimes I will go up and uh, speak to classes, English classes, um, or just go up and, um, you know, just hang out. Sure. Well, I'm sure you get asked a lot, David, so by, you know, classmates at homecoming or just people as you're walking around, um, how did you become a writer? Um, so what's your general answer to that? Uh, huh. Well, you know... Um, you know, I, I I advise a lot of writers, and I guess it's kind of the same thing as it is like a call to religion or something. It's uh, it's uh, it's like you can't not write, and I'm I'm sure you feel this uh, this feeling as well that that's what we're here for, and we got to do it, and uh, and if we don't do it, we feel guilty, like we're not fulfilling some kind of mandate. I don't want to get mystical about it, but that's kind of the way I feel. Yeah, I, that, so that captures it. Yeah. Did you yeah, write your so, fir- Did you write your first book when you were on active duty? I wrote a couple of short stories. They were pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, first <laughs> efforts are pretty bad. Yeah. yeah, they were pretty bad, but you know, I rewrote them and then I stuck them into chapters in later books. So uh, nothing goes to waste. That's right. I never throw anything away. You know, it's uh, it's always going to go somewhere. So, were you an English major at the Naval Academy? No, um, no, I was a standard old uh, engineering guy. I did, did take a uh, creative writing class from uh, Professor White, and some people will remember him. And I, I wrote a short story in that class that eventually was uh, one of the first things I published. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, have any, you, you mentioned that you, teach writing you teach at Wilkes and I, I saw on your um, Facebook page that you've taught some at the Naval Academy you mentioned sometimes talking here have you mentored any writers who've become successful writers yeah uh, we have worked with some uh, some people who are on the top 10 bestseller list now wow. um, I, I don't want to uh, name names so I won't name names but uh, you know that would be kind of claiming credit if you will gotcha but, uh, yeah but yeah, yeah, we've worked with uh, some people who are, you know, huge bestsellers and movie sales, and uh, pretty proud of our students. Yes, that's fantastic. Really good. Proud. So uh, the other question you always get is, uh, are they going to make a movie out of your book? Uh, what are your experiences uh, in that in that arena? You know, people optioning uh, your 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 work, and and uh, have you come close to in any ways with respect to that? Yeah, uh, actually, Philo McGiffin that you mentioned was optioned, or not optioned, it was bought by Universal for John Badham to make. Uh, and then Badham fell out of uh, favor at Universal, and we're not really privy to that, but I did get the big check, and I did cash the big check. So. <laughs> <laughs> and the best of all worlds is I don't have to apologize for the movie. <laughs> you got paid for it, don't have to apologize. Yeah, oh, that's, that's right. Great. Yeah, hey. some things are in play now in L.A. We have a new uh, a new agent out there, and he's uh, putting some things in play. But uh, 
uh, you'll be the first to know if anything gets signed. That's exciting. Uh, So I mentioned in the review of your book uh, that Proceedings readers who appreciated the uh, essay in the May issue uh, by Captain Dale Relog called How We Lost the Great Pacific War will want to read your books, especially the the last, the, the most recent four about the prelude to and then war with China. Um, I was I was curious if you had had a chance to read Dale's piece. Oh, yeah, I did read I did read that piece. And our ideas are kind of parallel. Of course, by the time that came out, the uh, the manuscript for Deep War had already been sent to the publisher, so I can't say there was any direct link or direct influence. But we're thinking along the same lines there. Yeah, you definitely are. Yeah, not in not really in terms of loss, but in in terms that uh, it's not going to be a short war. It's not going to be a fun war. Uh, it's going to be a long, ugly war, and everybody's going to suffer. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was. Uh, very notable. Uh, a lot of readers have pointed this out to me that, you know, the active duty head of intelligence at the Pacific Fleet, uh, you know, in 2018, wrote a prediction that we could lose war with China in, in 2025, so seven years in the future. So that, get, that got a lot of people's attention. Some didn't like it, you know, but uh, but Dale is a guy who um, is probably one of the smartest and most, you know, best informed people in the U.S. government about China's military buildup and their goals, their strategy uh, and capabilities. And, and so, uh, you know, pretty serious when he said, hey, we, we could lose this next one. Well, you know, wars don't start until both sides feel that uh, they might be able to win. I mean, if, uh, if one side is uh, pretty clearly the underdog, it's hard to start a war. If the the point where the uh, where the uh, arcs intersect, if you will, it become the most dangerous. Yeah, and then the the point that was brought up uh, really well by a number of not, not just uh, the keynote uh, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who spoke at our China Challenge conference in October, but also some of the uh, uh, military and uh, senior academics who've, who've studied China uh, all talked about this theme that in 1914. Nobody would have predicted that uh, Germany and England, who were the two most powerful economies in the world and the two most interconnected economies in the world, would have gone to war with each other over something that happened over a you know, second-rate politician who was assassinated in Sarajevo. Uh, and so the the conversation, um, it, it sort of there was this arc of conversation about what what. Uh, other players or actors, minor actors, could do something in Asia or somewhere else in the world that would set the U.S. and China uh, on a path to war. And so that was a really interesting conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the Korea possibility, the Senkaku's possibility, the South China Sea, ASEAN, Vietnam, Philippines. You know, there were lots of different, you know, potential uh, friction points that could become sparks. So, uh, you know, a lot of people thinking about this and and you know you've taken the the step and you know writing it as a book of what it would actually look like if uh, if war broke out uh, my take on that was uh, there are a number of flashpoints but my take on it was a tipping point was uh, India and Pakistan started by a uh, terrorist attack in Mumbai and uh, India and Pakistan go in it that escalates to a regional nuclear exchange, then China and the U.S. both get drawn in. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly analogous to what they were saying at that that conference. Right, that was one. I, I forget who it was. Uh, one of the academics in the afternoon talked about that India-Pakistan nexus and also the uh, the territorial um, dispute over the Himalayas uh, between India and China. So there's a there's a dispute, and they're occasionally you know firing um, you know uh, it goes kinetic up there on the border, and then they manage it. But, you know, what happens if they don't manage it well sometime, you know? Yeah. yeah. One feels a little guilty about uh, writing about these things, but the idea being that if we write about them, maybe they won't happen because they bring bring it to the forefront of everyone's attention, and maybe we can take some steps or be a little bit more cautious than we would otherwise. Yeah, that's a great point. That's, uh, that's some lofty... Uh, Lofty uh, tenets of uh, of a novelist. I liked it. Right. It, it reminds me of the comment that uh, uh, Graham Allison, who wrote the Thucydides trap, uh, and he was at that conference in October. You know, he mentioned that since his book was published in 2016, he's spent part of every month since then looking for. Uh, a way to find, you know, an answer that leads to the, you know, the the, the conclusion Get that no, the no, we are not, yeah. we're not headed towards the trap. They're not stuck and destined for war. The U.S. and China are not destined for. But you know, he's actively looking for that as an academic, um, and and you on the other side on the as a. Um, uh, as a novelist, you know, writing this and, and getting it in front of people's uh, attention and you know, letting them know just how bad this would be. So we really need to focus on on managing the the um uh the competition between the u.s and china managing the friction points and uh and figuring out a way to avoid this uh thucydides trap so uh, we're on the same page there well david poyer thank you for joining us uh we've been talking about your latest book called deep war which comes out in december um a, a review of it is on page 84 of the november issue of proceedings uh, really appreciate talking to you, and we look forward to your next book. Well, best to both of you. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Hope we see you soon. Yes, sir. I'll, I'll check in when I get up there next. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. Well, that wraps it up for this week's Proceedings Podcast. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. <laughs>